just a small village, a little bit north and east of one of the largest towns of the country. Small village that was a sleepy town, but it was large enough that it had a train station and a population that can service the soldiers of this small base. This small base was built on an abandoned hospital site that was just on the other side of the forest from this small town. Now the people of the town were strictly forbidden from going anywhere near this base. They were only to provide food and shelter and bars for the soldiers when they were off duty. Soon a rail extension went east just south of the town and the base was soon flooded with boxcars. Day and night these boxcars kept arriving. The soldiers that were stationed at the base were rarely sober. And there came a strange stench from this town. And a smoke billowed continuously. Smoke from 41,500 corpses over approximately 12 years from 1933 to 1945. In the early 90s, I visited this Concentracion Centrum and there stood a gate, and on this gate there was a sign, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes one free. Dachau is one of the all too many hells on earth that we have created for each other. And it was a hell for every victim. The murdered, the murderers, and the witnesses. Today, just south, immediately south of Dachau, there's an apartment complex that looks straight at the soldiers' barracks on the south side of the camp. And across the street, immediately east, there is a, a business that's a couple of stories tall that its western windows look straight out over the first of Germany's death camps. There is, though, another hell. Graphically, if not entirely correctly, portrayed by Dante Alighieri, who noted also a gate and a sign on the gate that said, Abandon all hope ye who enter here. That, at least, was correct. Tonight we are going to talk about the worst of all topics. Alas, however, it is one of the most important, at least for the time being. One day, for those who trust Christ's promises, it will be utterly unimportant. Now tonight, I would rather talk about sexual politics. I would rather talk about the legalization of marijuana. I would rather talk about whiners at Grace Baptist Church, because there aren't any. <laughs> but alas, here we are. This is where the text has taken us, and this is where we must land. We are talking tonight about the bad news so that we can better understand and preach the good news. 
By the way, we will give hell, heaven excuse me, equal time next week, so hopefully I won't be quite so depressed all week next week. And allow me to preface my comments on hell by stating something you've heard me say. Christianity is simple. Christianity is not complex. And it's not easy either. Christianity is not easy. And this is one of those teachings that is certainly not easy. I want to get it straight right up front. Hell is a place of eternal conscience punishment for the wicked. And I want to state something else up front. Uh, in my reading over the last two weeks, I found lots of authors who want to soft pedal hell. Oh Lord, that is so tempting. And it's so easy to see why men and women who do love Jesus want to do it. And I know that I'm going to have to stand before my judge and I don't want to be that person. I believe that hell is the only thing worth fearing. The only thing worth fearing is falling into the hands of a wrathful God. Now, having said that, based upon the New Testament, we know much more about heaven than we do about hell. Because, I think, in part, heaven is where every single man, woman, and child for the entire span of history, history all the way back to Adam and Eve, and history all the way forward until the last child is born, is meant to be, ought to be, needs to be. Heaven was designed for human beings while hell was designed for Satan and his demonic cohort. Alas, not every man, woman, and child will be in heaven, and there will be far too many in hell. Which brings us to the very first point. There can be no discussion of hell without a discussion of real choice. The Bible has no place for teaching about free will. Free will is the word that people toss about and they throw around all the time. Only one person in the universe can have what philosophers call libertarian free will. Absolute choice of their own. And that can only be the almighty creator God of the universe. Everyone else has what we call conditional free will, or what I and many other Christian philosophers have called real choice. Real choice means that you and I and every other man, woman, and child makes real, eternally significant choices that both reflect us and the experiences that have made us who we are, as well as those choices make us us into the beings that we are becoming. And make no mistake, those beings, those humans who ultimately go to heaven will become fully ourselves. We will become fully what it 
was that God created us to be. While those who consign themselves to rebellion and the Lord cast into hell will become a shadow. Or as C.S. Lewis literarily puts it, ghosts of what they should have been in hell. Real choice is found throughout Scripture. And I'm, I chose one of a longer passage because I want you to hear what Moses is saying to us because I think, I think it pulls out many of the important aspects of what real choice is and how it plays for every man, woman, and child. Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, I love that. How do you obey God's commands? You love Him. I would like to take a whole night just talk about that, not hell, but that we can't do that. If you obey the commands I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and keeping His commandments and His statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth witness to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. I'm going to take a time out here for a second because we need to hear the gospel. And the gospel is that you must choose and it is through Christ and it is in Christ that God chooses us so that we can choose Him. He gives us the grace that we need. You cannot do it yourself. And if you have a conscience that's alive, you'll say, well, I haven't always done this. Trust in Jesus. More on that to come. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will have found the path that is eternal life. If you choose to chase after other gods that cannot satisfy, you are dead. This world, for those who are in Christ, is as close to hell as we will ever come. This world, for those who are not in Christ, is as close to heaven as they will ever come. And you know what? Even the secular world understands this. You've, you've heard this poem or poems like it. Watch your thoughts, they become attitudes. Watch your attitudes, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for your character is your destiny. You've heard poems like that. You've seen little memes like that. And here's the, here's the essence of it. We become either the kind of person that fits in heaven or we become the kind of person that fits nowhere but the trash heap of the universe. Now, if you'll get on board with that simple distinction, then the trouble with hell has almost disappeared. The, the logical trouble 
with hell at least. Of course, not the emotional. If there is a choice, then it must be possible to make the wrong choice. And the wrong choice in this case of choosing not to love and be loved is in eternal separation from the only source of life that there exists. And it is to be relegated to the quarantine section of the universe when all is said and done. Be appalled, O heavens. Just be revolted, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living waters. And they have hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can have hold no water. And it is for the people who dive into this and away from the fountains of life that they have to go somewhere because they have rejected the only source of life there is. Why? Why do we choose this? Why do we turn away that from that which is life-sustaining and joy-birthing and soul-satisfying? Why do we turn to petty things like money, sex, and power when eternal joy is offered to us? Health and fulfillment and all that we know that we need but we're chasing after in the wrong places. It's not a hard question to answer actually. It's because we have been blinded by the God of this age to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And should we reject Him, should we ultimately and finally concretize ourselves into this rebellion, then the Lord has given us three Fates, three ways of looking and viewing the, the privation, the casting out of which is hell. He, he calls it rejection or exclusion. He calls it futility or utter defeat. Or he, he also calls it punishment or wrath. Look, look at some of these verses. In verse 12 of Matthew 25, he, he talks about rejection. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. In verse 30, he talks about defeat or futility. And cast the worthless servant out into utter, utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pain and anguish and bitterness. And then he talks about wrath. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Donna and I made a decision early in our parenting career. We never mention punishment in our house. There's consequences for misbehavior, and we have given many consequences, but not punishment. Punishment is reserved for those who reject the Lord. As I now step into a more philosophical mode, 
I want you to allow nothing that I say or fail to say, because I can't cover everything, to prevent you from believing that I believe hell is anything less than the most awful place in the universe and the only end worth truly fearing. And I want you to know, because it is a common misconception, what God's wrath is. All of us have had fathers or bosses or someone in authority over us who just, you know, react out of anger in an immediate thing. That is not what God's wrath is. When the Lord, when the Bible talks about the Lord's wrath, He's talking about His settled opposition to all sin. His settled disposition that hates everything that separates His creation that He created in His image from Himself. And He's going to destroy it forever. God will destroy everything that corrupts and defiles that which He loves most. He will pour out His wrath on all sin that warps those that He has made in His image. And He will do it on His Son, on the cross, for all who would ever trust His promises for them in Christ, or for whoever has rejected that promise, for whoever has turned their back on that promise and say, no thank you, I don't want that. That wrath will be poured out upon that individual from the moment they die until eternity. What we learn about hell from the New Testament and what we can reason from what the New Testament teaches is aimed at us understanding mostly emotively fear, repulsion, wanting to get out, what we learn about hell is aimed at our hearts and our hands, not so much to our heads. And so, what Jesus teaches about hell is aimed at our will, where we make our decisions and our conscience. It is not aimed at answering every single little question that we could come up with. I frankly don't know a lot about hell. But what we do know, what we can say with absolute certainty is that you and I must boycott hell. And we must enable others to do the same. Now, let's get into some of these points that I want to make with regards to hell. And the first is, frankly, a hard one. I would say in every culture, but certainly in ours today, what about the justness or the rightness? Is hell a right thing? And I am saying, man, I am traveling in deep waters here. Not because I want to, but because this is what the Bible teaches. And I also want to stress, as I said last week, the difference between 
me who is talking about hell and the average ISIS fighter is that I don't want people to go to hell. I don't want the people who have done the worst things in my life to me and to those whom I love to go to hell. I want them to be saved. And the people who have done horrible things to you, I've talked to many of you in this room, and I know some of the horrible things that have happened to you. You should pray that those people go to heaven so that you can talk and be with them forever in heaven. Because that's the only thing that will make all the evil that we've experienced right. More on that some other time. Secondly, we know that God does not want people to go to hell. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Turn away from broken cisterns and dive into the fountains of living waters. It's available for everyone, even ISIS fighters. Now, one of the most common objections to the biblical teaching about hell is it seems out of proportion. Whatever it is a person can do for 80 years could not begin to justify an eternity of conscious punishment. Now, I must say, this objection carries some weight to it. We must answer it. And I think there's, there's two thoughts that go into that we must consider in order to answer this. Now, by the way, I don't think the average non-believer is going to buy either one of these. So this is really aimed for you to understand and tell it to your non-believing friends because it's only the Holy Spirit who saves. Amen? So here, here are the two thoughts. How does 80 years worth of sin justify an eternity of conscious punishment? And the first is that the sin... Every sin that you commit, that I commit, is not primarily against my wife or my children or you, my church. Primarily, it's against the Almighty Creator God of the universe who is of infinite glory and therefore my spurring of Him is an infinite insult which demands eternity to pay the debt. Now, I believe that. I think that's true. But I do, I do actually believe something else. Let's say, for example, that a specific sin earns you 10 minutes in hell. Okay? Bear with me here. Bear with the, the illustration. Let's say this particular sin gets you 10 minutes in hell. And let's say over 80 years, you accumulate enough of these that... You're a good couple of centuries in hell, right? Well, a couple of centuries go by. You should get sprung, right? Well, not so fast. Because that person in hell remains unredeemed. They remain a sinner. They remain someone who has not been, had their sins wiped away and um, righteousness credited to their account. 
And so, just like someone in San Quentin can commit another murder and have more time added to their sentence, this person continues to be the person who continually sins and continually has their sins not forgiven and righteousness not credited to them. Now, I think that that is a good apologetic tool. In other words, I think that that helps to make sense out of the justness of hell. But I think, I think the first one is the real answer. You deal with that as, as you would see fit. And I also want to counteract something that you will see online. If you look this up, people trying to soft-pedal hell, they will say something along the lines of, well, if the unredeemed person, God lets them into heaven, heaven will seem like hell to them because of the presence of the Lord. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going there. Because of this passage. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Wow, this is a hard passage to read. Do you have a loved one about whom this is true? Do you have a dad? Do you have a mom about whom this is true? Do you have a child? Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Hell is the only place a lost soul can fit. His or her heart has been shaped by his or her sinful desires and not by God the Son, and therefore it won't fit in heaven. Now, thoughtful people have asked a reasonable question about hell. Am I required to believe some of the imagery of hell? I, I mean, we, we talk about hell as a place of darkness, but then we talk about hell as, a, as an unquenchable fire. We talk about hell as being a lake of fire. And Are we required to believe these seemingly contradictory images? Now, let me answer that because it's a reasonable question. You are required to believe that hell is real and that those who refuse the love of God will be cast into hell. Notice, cast into hell, not willingly go into it. They will be cast by God into hell on the judgment day. And remember, imagery is exactly that. Imagery. Imagery is written to give you an emotive 
picture of the reality of hell. I think one of the main truths about hell is its utter isolation. You are completely cut off from anybody and everybody. You are in utter darkness. And I at the same time believe that this image of fire and burning and, and pain and destruction and being banished are also true. How does that work? I hope I never find out. I hope that if that's ever an option, I can turn the other way. We'll see. I don't get to make those decisions. And I believe also that there will be, for lack of a better term, degrees of punishment in hell. I think there will be those who are cast into a deeper part of hell. I get that from Matthew 11. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now I'm going to transition again. And I want to preface this by saying that this is the most horrible thing I could say. I can run a blue streak for 10 minutes and you guys would fire me from my job and it would not be as bad as what I'm about to say. I can quote yo mama jokes to you guys for 10 minutes and again, deserve to be fired and it would not be nearly as bad as what I'm about to say. Truly, this next sentence is utterly beyond the pale. And if it were not based in Scripture, it would be just blasphemy. Unfortunately, I think it is based on Scripture. No one will be in hell who does not deserve to be there. And no one will be subject to more wrath than they deserve to experience. No insult. No curse. No death wish given to you by your enemy could be as horrible as that sentence. And you need to feel this because that's what it's meant to do is draw you in pity to the person that you know that is going to be cast there so you can pull them away from the gates. If sinners be damned, let least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Boycott hell. Now what can we do? 
What, oh my Lord, can we do? I want to answer a serious objection to hell. The biblical teaching of hell. I want to answer the objection, well, why didn't God do more to boycott hell? I think C.S. Lewis put this, the answer to this correctly. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But He has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. They don't want to be forgiven. To leave them alone, which is what they ask of us, stop bothering me. Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. One last major objection and one that really bothered me for a time in my Christian walk and one that I at one point really wanted to walk away from the doctrine of hell. And it was this. This was the objection. How is it that the mere existence of one soul in hell, if there was only one soul in hell, forget about however many there are going to be. How could the mere existence of one soul in hell not veto heaven? How could one saint, knowing that there is a hell, enjoy heaven? I don't know. This, this is a tough one. Whew. My, my answer is we're going to have to get there and see. But it's going to do us a whole lot less good if we're the ones who are in hell wondering about it than if we're the ones who are in heaven wondering about it. Is that mercenary? If it is, it is the one that is commanded of me by the almighty personal creator God of the universe. And so that's where I have to get my answer. And I think that there is a reasonable, if not a foolproof line of thinking about this. And, and again, it was C.S. Lewis who helped me in this. The demand of the loveless and the self the, the, the loveless and the self-imprisoned demand that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe. That they, till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one shall taste joy. That theirs should be the final power that hell should be able to veto heaven. And the answer is no. And pardon the expression, hell no. Ain't going to happen. Although we will mourn for those who selfishly choose to follow their own path rather than God's, those 
people cannot diminish the utter joy of living in the very presence of the Lord. Those who are hell-bound have no grounds to demand that you and I are miserable. Lewis finishes by saying, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Oh Lord, spare us. So please surrender. Please hear and obey. I don't assume that everyone in this room is saved. I don't assume that just because you've been in church for longer than I've been alive that you are a true believer. I don't assume that you are right with God. The Bible doesn't give me that kind of assurance. The Bible gives me assurance that I can know that I am saved and the Bible warns us and warns you through men like me to tell you what are some of the signs that you need to recognize in yourself to know that you in the end are going to boycott hell. But I don't know that you're saved. So let me give you the bad news. Let me give you the bad news. You, every single person, is a sinner by birth and by choice. You have been born into a race of humans that essentially, at the bottom of our beings, will not surrender to love but want to pursue their own interests at the expense of loving and being loved by God. Furthermore, by your attitudes and your actions, you have actively rebelled against His overtures of love and have spurned His efforts to save you from yourself. You have spit in His face. You don't think you have? You have every time you have knowingly, thoughtfully did what I did when I was about five years old and walk into a liquor store and go to that little toy area and start to open that package and put it in your pocket. You ever do that? Did you ever knowingly look your mom or your dad right in the eye and lie to their face? Did you ever look at someone to lust for them that wasn't your spouse? Boy, we have a lousy record, don't we? And you in your heart knew that what you were doing was wrong, even if you didn't have a Bible in front of you when you did it. You, my friends, have no excuse. No one does. And I'll tell you something one better than that. If you have lived in America in the 20th century or the 21st century, you have had an opportunity for the gospel that is unheard of in the history of the world. And if you have still spurned that, if you have sat in a church for all your life and you have Man, can we go get some chicken yet? 
it will be better for you than for those in Capernaum. Good news. The good news is, you might still be a thief. You might still be tempted to take something that isn't yours. You might still be an adulterer. You might still be looking at, uh, who's out there? You might still be an egomaniac thinking about yourself, trying to figure out number one, whenever and wherever you go. But if by God's grace, the great transaction has happened, you have said, Lord, forgive me. God, I need you. I surrender to you. If you have gone to God's word and looked in it to find the promises, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will delight to do you good. And you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And if you begin to arrange your life so that this is more and more true of you and try to make it more and more true of those who are around you, perfectly? Yeah, right. Ask my wife. No. Not perfectly. Sincerely, yes. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, that is where you can come and you can say, Lord, this is me. I want it to be me. Give me you. Then, my friend, then, my friend, you can be one who leads the boycott of hell wherever you are. But unfortunately, it has been said truly, the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. That might be you. Peter says something very similar. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? My friends, do not believe that this message is fine for your niece to hear. Don't tell your cousin to go on the website and look up the sermon so that they can get you know, good information because they need to hear it. This is for us. This is for me so that I can, a number of things, repent of my sins and in grace turn and rejoice in the glorious gracious God of all eternity who loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. Go this week and help those around you to boycott hell. Lord Almighty, it's fun to joke about listening to records and my singing. But this is a serious subject. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we will be men and women who are about actively helping others to avoid the eternal flames. Give us grace tonight, Lord Jesus, to know you and the power of your mercy.
and the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.